Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. My next guest has had an interesting and varied business life. A software engineer by profession, Raj has founded three startups, raised capital, and taken one venture from zero to acquisition. With a successful exit under his belt and a growing business on the horizon, Raj takes the time to chat to us about the lessons learned while building and selling his company and the one thing he would do differently to improve the value he achieved from his business sale. We will also hear Raj's formula on how to scale a business quickly. This is Raj Goodman Anand. Hello, Raj. Welcome to the show. Simon, thanks for for having me. Good to be on it. My absolute pleasure. I'm uh, I'm very very excited to hear your story today, and and uh, you know as the the folks would have heard from the intro, we you've got a, a, an interesting background and been in, been around and been in business a bit. So maybe you can give us a little bit of background and and tell us you know where did your story all sort of begin? Absolutely, Simon. So uh, the story began professionally speaking about 15, 16 years back when I was studying AI at the University of Sussex in Brighton in the UK. And uh, someone told me about this thing called MySpace, which is like this, that time, the, the, the coolest thing to be on. It was like the Facebook of, of us old folks. Uh, so <laughs> effectively, um, you know, I've been an engineer. I built my own clone of MySpace in, in a couple of months. And then I went to the market to kind of sell it. And I realized I can't sell it. I can't market it. So did a mini MBA and thought to really get into the idea of B2B selling. So launched my first business, which is a social media white label software business, which was a good learning. Let's put it that way. It was, you know, we have we have a bit, a bit of learning. So, but that business didn't didn't go going to plan, but it was a great learning. Raised money, um, you know, got some really good customers in travel and and government sectors. Then wrote a book for Financial Times and Patient Education on social media marketing. Then started working for a company in in in, in Spain. Helped them grow from seven and a half million to forty five million in in revenue. Uh, in the back of storytelling, SEO, and content writing. So I'm like, hang on, this is wow. there's something there within this space. Let me stop making them money and make myself cash. Yeah. So I started this <laughs> this new company which I currently run called Goodman Lantern, where we you know help customers uh, write their own content in native English and help them sell better and grow faster. Now the funny part is, amongst all the stuff, different stuff, I was also doing a startup in the in the evenings while I was working for the Spanish company. So I was literally working, I don't know, fifteen hours per day, um, weekends included, and it was crazy. But what a lovely ride, I must say. It was just absolutely fabulous. <laughs> 
Well, you know, the, and and you've just ticked so many boxes for so many other entrepreneurs and listeners, right? I mean, I, I reckon a few people like I was just then, people who couldn't see me off screen, I was having a little chuckle to myself going, oh, yeah, you know, we, we're, we're busy people. We've got a lot on our plates. What do we do? Start up an extra business at night because, you know, we can't contain those ideas. So you might as well just let them free, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I think there is never a a quiet day for a person running a business, you know, Entrepreneur, or no, it depends on how we brand it. But I mean, we, you know, we just, we just like to be busy. I think that's part of our DNA. Yeah, totally. And so that's really fascinating. I mean, you've obviously, you know, taken a, the, this route of studying tech and AI. And, and, and I must admit, I was kind of, and maybe I'm showing my age here, but like when you said studying AI 15, 16 years ago, I'm like, did that exist then? You know, <laughs> like it must have been very different to what it's like today. Absolutely. Well, my mother thought for the longest time that AI was a study of UFOs. So she thought I'm studying <laughs> UFOs. So, I mean, it shows even my near and dears had no clue what I was doing. So all of this AI back then was all uh, on paper. We didn't do a lot of implementation because it was too intensive for computers, for example. So, um, you know, I was building games. So I was my AI was to make computer opponents smarter uh, make them more human-like. So, that, so I was not doing machine learning at all. I was doing neural networks, basically completely different fields of AI because AI is a really vast space, you know. So I was I was in a completely different area. But uh, you can apply stuff to machine learning. You can apply stuff to the stuff you're currently working on. The bizarre part is, you know, an a AI engineer finally started actually started a company which I sold eventually, which is it was in the event space. So I was doing end parties or bachelorette parties, which in the UK, we've got, we've got hen parties and actually selling uh, bachelorette parties. And, you know, it was a shock for people who know me because they know, I mean, it's really bizarre to go from engineering AI to, to the events, but it is, you know, it's all part of entrepreneurship really, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it fascinating because I think when you're out and about and you're, you know, trying to drive things and make something work from a business perspective, you invariably do see lots of other little opportunities, right? It's, uh, and in actual fact, I think probably the issue is never a lack of ideas or opportunities out there. It's actually entrepreneurs saying, which one will I pick and focus on? <laughs> so it's, it can, be, can often be the challenge, right? Certainly. And I, I think fundamentally, all businesses have the same opportunities, challenges. You know, I'm part of this like network of, of entrepreneurs, which is a global network, and we have a London chapter. And we all from different areas, you know. There's, there's people from 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 course online courses right through to you know selling vegetables and fruits, for example. Yeah. And it's bizarre how like the challenges we we all see are very similar. We all talking about you know expanding sales, uh, how we can market better, how can we reduce cost of operations, for example. The same fundamental applies to across the board to all industries as well. Yeah, it's a that's a really good point. You know, as as different as we all may seem, there is always commonality. So, so t- take us through. You, you you started down this path of AI, and then you've almost, I guess, out of necessity, you started getting into kind of B two B selling. Yeah, yeah. It's I think for most engineers, especially at university. I mean, I'm I'm not Mark Zuckerberg. You know, I'm I'm a regular Joe blog. You know, I'm 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 not a a a risk kid. But uh, for for most normal people they they believe that you know you build and they will come and when you start to build a business and you start to really get out there to get customers you realize actually 
doesn't work like that. You know, you need marketing, you need sales, you need a, a sales pipeline, you need experienced people, you need referrals from current customers. And all that takes time. You know, it's it's a really interesting part, which for most engineers, they feel like, you know what, my job is to build the best product possible. And then I'll put it out there and I'll, I will be valued at a billion. And I'm going to go in the Bahamas and I'm going to sit there with my pina colada. The reality is, my friend, <laughs> it's very different. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And isn't that the... It's kind of the frustrating part probably for, from around life. I guess a lot of engineers would feel this, but you could build the world's greatest product, but if nobody knows you exist, it's meaningless. And, and isn't that, you know, I think the, the, the lesson learned for all business owners out there is understanding, you know, there is a journey people need to go on if they're going to kind of buy your service or product or invest and, you know, it's it's understanding what that journey looks like, I guess, and and making it as appealing as possible. Absolutely, I'm kind of reading a book by Aaron Gross and Jason Lemkins. Uh, it's called Impossible to Inevitable. Um, it's it's about selling. It's about sales. It's about that sort of growing your your business. And I mean, brilliant book. You know, it's just like it just breaks down for a SaaS company how you should be really focusing on your sales process and number of people you need to have in sales to achieve you know 10 million ARR or 100 million ARR or 1 billion ARR so so for those that miss it what what was the name of that book again impossible to inevitable by Aaron Ross and Jason Lemkin or yeah I think Jason Lemkin yeah. uh, but if you just impossible to inevitable yes right. um yeah cool yeah it's, it's it's a it's a great great book on just sales basically it's all about sales out, outbound sales basically yeah yeah well it's interesting because I, I know we um we see a lot of clients out there and and clearly software sales you know SaaS and and these kind of businesses are not only growing bigger but becoming more prevalent right and and I guess one of the things that we talk a lot about is is people who are building these businesses and eventually exiting. And of course, the big question comes up as to uh, you know how do you value businesses like this? Right? And it's it's such an issue because it's you are com- it's a completely different paradigm to traditional businesses where you might have historical trading and multiples of EBITDAs or you know perhaps a bit of a discounted cash flow model and things like that right and and you know I've got friends in this space and I ask them you know what what are you seeing out there and and the valuations are just they just blow me away there doesn't appear to be a, a logic to it other than just people with a crap load of money going I want this and I'm just going to pay for it <laughs> that's it it's incredible. Another great book which I read recently was Built to Sell. Yes, John Warlow. John Warlow, which I, I believe from Australia as well. And no, he's actually he's actually from Canada. I know John. He's a lovely, lovely guy. Um, and he has a fantastic podcast called Built to Sell Radio. So tip my hat to John. He's uh, he's fabulous. Yeah, indeed. I mean that book is just being like it just opened my mind to, you know. I mean, we don't have to build to sell is what I'm, I'm going to say, but it's it's really good to do that because, you, you know, we build in processes, we build in a, a scalable company and the founder needs to also be focused on certain business areas. And if they are just building a company to get themselves a job, it's just a really silly idea in my opinion. So I like the book. It's all focused about how to build a, a scalable company which you can actually sell at the end if you'd like to. Yeah, yeah, and I think isn't that the point, right? It's it's not saying you have to build it because you're going to sell. 
It simply implies that the ultimate freedom for any business owner is to build a company that is saleable. In other words, it doesn't rely on you. It doesn't bear all those critical risk factors that could, you know, basically end your business overnight. It's robust, right? It's it's worth something. It has a life of its own. And, you know, I think that's that's this is part of the reason we have this podcast, I think, is because that so many business owners get into business for freedom. Mm. You know, freedom to make the kind of money they feel they deserve, freedom to manage their time, freedom in my mind, to kind of really do what they want when they want. Yeah. And yet they then fall into this trap of uh, being in business and the business sort of owns them and it's, you know, that ends up sometimes being a nightmare for them. So, you know, hopefully hopefully, hearing these kind of stories is is what helps people, I guess, grab, get a, grab a hold of that and turn it around. Absolutely. I, I think why build a business where you, you're working in it? I mean, it, that's just counterintuitive. You can just go get a job, yeah. build a business where you're working on it and actually helping, you know, employ people, scale the company up, build something exciting. Uh, that, that's the way I think about it. Yeah. So so tell us a bit about this uh, this business with the uh, the hens nights. This sounds fascinating. I mean, it seems like you, you grew this thing to a reasonable size. Yeah, so it became UK's largest dance-based hen party company. And the bizarre part is, I mean, before starting this business, I had no idea about hen parties. I've never be, obviously never been in one. <laughs> I mean, it's not <laughs> a guy I would go to, but it's fascinating because I, I met a friend. I mean, I'm, I'm a, my old friend is still a great friend. He told he, he teaches salsa dance lessons, so he teaches how to dance salsa. And he said, listen, like hen parties is a big thing in Brighton where she lived, lived back then. And in London, if you just start this business, uh, I can teach salsa and you can build a website and, and we'll, we'll make a, a good living. And, and we were single, so we're like, why not? Um, <laughs> yeah, so we started with, with in two cities with like one or two dance lessons. So we had street dancing and, and, and salsa dancing. And you know, literally the first the first year, doing no marketing whatsoever, not even a proper functioning website, we got about ten to twenty grips, uh, about average about twenty to thirty people. Uh, I'm like, wow, this is great. Uh, so let's let's put some money behind it. Let's just get out get out there, and instead of building our teams and like you know putting everyone on the payroll, we built a model where we were scaling up to partnerships. So we literally, you know, we start launching a new city. We'll find partners there who will then you know, actually service the customer when they come in. So we will sell in, for example, accommodation. The dance lesson was the biggest part of the, the hen party, as we realized afterwards. Nightclub entry, you know, breakfast, dinners, everything included. And, it, and you know, typically you know, size would be 20 people. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's big money. And at a peak, we were doing about, about 100, 150 grips per, per weekend. I mean, it was just absolutely nuts. Mm. And we were doing everywhere from north of England to to Italy, to Spain, uh, all wow. across the UK. And and then we just thought, okay, this is great, but I've got a day job, which is where I want to focus my attention on. That's like more in line with what I do as a as a as a software engineer, marketing professional. And this is this is a bit of fun, but this is grown so quickly. I I have to give it, you know, proper management space and and growth opportunities. So, one of my business partners back then, you know, her, her and family wanted to invest in it. So they were in, investing in 
uh, as an opportunity to come into the UK entertainment industry. And so they purchased it and then it was sold again to a larger company in the in the in the event space. So, wow. yeah, fascinating. But it just happened. It, it wasn't planned. Yeah, yeah. And it's I mean, it sounds like, you know, you, you struck a chord because obviously you've had some great success. So how big was the company in terms of sort of turnover and stuff like that by the time you got it to its peak? Uh, I don't know exactly, but it was it was doing around the millions. It was it was a it was a healthy number. By the time I exited the company, we were we were on a mark to we were we were in that sort of seven digit space. So it was not a nine digit company. It wasn't doing you know hundred million as such, but it was still a reasonable sale. And it was for me, I could have stuck to that business and done that full time, and I could have actually done it properly built some technology around it and then sold it properly for, for a higher multiple. But I was so focused on my on my day stuff, which was where I wanted to kind of focus on, that I basically said, you know what, I will just let it you know, let it be in the right hands and and exit the company basically. Yeah, yeah. Well I think that makes a sense for a lot of people. I mean you, you know, you're on a journey. It's I, I actually think it's it's a sign of emotional intelligence that people can say, you know, I've I've let this run its course and there's probably other people who can do more with this now. And, you know, in some ways, I, I think sometimes owners even feel like, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm actually holding it back because I'm, I'm not willing to invest time and money to keep growing it. And so is that really the right thing to do? Um, did, did you ever sort of have that kind of experience or was that? Yeah, all the time. I, I think a lot of people, some people, some entrepreneurs can, can actually run two companies, three companies at the same time. Uh, like Jack Dorsey, you know, he runs two to awesome companies, Twitter and Square, at the same time. I mean, hats off to him. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I'm, I must be honest. I like to focus on one thing at one time. And I'll, I'd rather give that company my full attention to really grow it and learn from it and, and scale it up uh, than to have multiple you know, things in multiple pies. And that's the way I work. And I think everybody's different. I know, I know other fellow entrepreneurs who love to run three, four companies in, in different niches and, and do really well out of it. And, and kudos to them, you know, well done them. But my the way I work is, you know, I, I, I'm a guy, I can only do one thing at one time. So there, there you go. <laughs> I hear you, I hear you. I think multitasking is actually uh, a, a misnomer, you know. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, people like to think they do it well, but I invariably find you're, you're right. Most people can't do more than one thing well at a time. But anyway, or maybe I'm just projecting my limitations. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm curious, when you, you came to exit that business, obviously you sold to, to people you were already kind of in business with, right? Yes. And and. And how did you how did you come up with a, a number? Did you use some sort of methodology? Was it just a you know what was the general approach? Yeah, I mean, if I if I would have had a chance to go back in time and change it, I'd probably use a broker to work with them and to help me guide me to the process. Because I mean, it was my first proper exit, and I didn't do a great job at it. To be honest with you, I, I bossed it up quite majorly. I could have got much more money for it, but it was I was so focused on my on my, on my day my day gig that I kind of didn't bother. What I did was I kind of built like a number which I thought would be you know a bit that it was it was a bit that based on you know the calculation I could find on the internet. So I, I didn't even go out to find an accountant to do it for me. I did it myself, and then I multiplied by. 2.5 or three times. I mean, why? I don't know. It's <laughs> just something that yeah. I found on the, <laughs> on the internet. And I said, okay, that's it. That's the price for it. And you can pay for this. Not, you know, you can, you can pay a chunk of it upfront 
and others you can stagger it up a little bit so it's also easy for you to see the opportunity as well and that's how i saw that yeah obviously if i had a chance to go back in time i'll probably do it properly i'll actually get somebody to help me achieve this look and that's a that's a really great insight i mean i think what you've just described is probably an experience that many many business owners have been through you know it's this the opportunity comes along, you've already kind of been a business owner and worked things out. You're pretty good at making decisions, no doubt. So, you know, you sort of work it out. And, and hey, you know, you, you used a broker, maybe you got a better price, maybe you wouldn't get a better price. But, you know, clearly you did a bit of research. And, and I think this is kind of leans into that whole, you know, so many people using the rule of thumb, you know. Hey, it's, I think it's kind of two and a half. It might be three, you know, um, and, and clearly that was good enough for you at the time so you could move on, which, you know, that in itself makes it a, a, a good decision. But um, it, I, it's something that I, I'm really fascinated about as to, you know, I've seen companies in one industry that are sell for a one times and I've seen them go all the way up to a six or eight times, you know, and it's, I guess one of the big questions I always get is what, what makes it different? You know, hey, aren't we all just a three in the middle, you know, the rule of thumb? And it's like, well, not all companies are the same. They're not all created equal. Going back over your time, is there, you know, I guess are there things that you note out of that business that you would do differently if you were trying to build for value and trying to maximize value? Yeah. Well, at the moment, what I'm doing is learning from what I did in the past and from, you know, people like yourself, Simon and and and, and John Rorlow and everybody else, and just trying to learn from what, what works. So I think one thing which which I would do a bit more is to focus a bit more. I think by the end of that, like towards the end of the company, you were doing corporate events as well as hen party, and we began stag party, which is like for, you know basically bachelor parties as well. And I think that was a bit too much diversification for us. You know, I would really focus on one thing and do it really well. The other thing is you know build some tech around it. So I'm I'm a, I'm a tech person. I like to you know scale things up. So Already in that company, there was a lot of scale because it was all done through. You could you could launch a new city within a week or so, for example. It was that scalable. Yeah. But what I would do probably is the ability to launch a city and build that new city offering and the supplier management a bit more using technology, for example. So really scale that up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's basically you know I'm in the Sales industry. I'm, I'm, we 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 run an agency, uh, a a content agency, and it, you know there's Upwork on one side, which is like super scalable, and then there are these other agencies who are just doing multiple things, and we've chosen to be somewhere in the, in the middle. We just do one thing really really well for B two B industry for SaaS market, and we don't kind of try to be everything for everybody. And that's what I'm kind of focusing on is to really build value and then technology to kind of really power. Uh, growth for uh, and save time for our team members. Basically, that's what I would do differently if I had to go back in time. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fascinating. And and uh, you know, one of the I, I guess we're starting to hear all these sort of terms like martech. I think most people have heard of fintech, and it's been interesting for me in the last couple of years hearing terms like prop tech, so tech for the property sector. And then, of course, martech has been the one that's popped up for me over the last uh, sort of, I don't know, year or two maybe. It's, not, it's, it's been fairly new. So maybe I'm in a backwater part of the world. But uh, so is that, is that kind of the space you play in? I, I would say so. I, I would say we are in the space of marketing and technology. So most of our customers are in tech. They are software companies, SaaS companies, 
IoT, Internet of Things, technology automation. So we are in that space. And also, I think if I was just building a service company, which would just basically hire people and get things done, that's just boring. I, I wouldn't enjoy that. <laughs> you know, I, I would just, you know, I would literally kill myself. I mean, I, I can't sit with that kind of stuff. So I need to build some innovation into it. So technology is where we innovate to how we, you know, we have built APIs to, you know, launch new projects in our tool set, for example. How do we hire people, for instance? Everything is built on a process we have built internally. And that's we're building that's why building value in the company is to really build a a strong procedural oriented company um not just you know uh, you know hire 10 people deliver to 100 people and that's the e- equation we run basically that's just boring we want to service 1000 customers with 10 people instead of you know uh, 10 you know 10 10 to 100 for example so that's that's the ambition of the company that's what we're working towards yeah brilliant and okay so and just just to reiterate so this company now is is Goodman Lantern that's correct yes it's good to yeah, great. And we, and we uh, as I said before, we are a team of native English content writers. We help customers sell better and grow faster. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. And so what sort of customers do you kind of currently service at the moment? Are they, you know, like corporates? Are they startups? Are they everything? What, is, there a, is there an area that you sort of deal most in? Yeah. So our business is focusing only on one area, which is subscription economy. So we only focus on companies who have that as part of their DNA and their business. So if, for example, if their their customers pay them on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis, then they are our customers. If they're not, then it's not really for us. So and, and just to clarify that, because I think it's it's something that I certainly hear come up, is that there can be a little bit of a confusion about recurring revenue and repeat customers. You know, and I think it's something that people get a little bit mixed up about, especially when you're looking at traditional businesses that, hey, we've been around 30 years and we've always dealt with these clients and they give me an order every month and it's just we've got a great relationship. And 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 I, I'll share my kind of understanding of this and please, please jump in and tell me if you have a different view here because I, I think it's an important note that those clients who just, you know, they give you another order every month and it's been repeating for a long time is wonderful. They are fabulous clients and they are worth an enormous amount to your business and those relationships are no doubt solid. But that does differ from, from what we're calling recurring revenue here where you have, as you said before, I guess a subscription base where perhaps, and I guess the most common one I see is a monthly recurring fee that is usually withdrawn directly from your account or your credit card. In other words, you, you and it's usually some sort of basic contract, right? So your client would need to say, you need to stop billing me. I am terminating this, no longer do this before, you know, for those payments to stop. Um, is that how you interpret that? Yes. And, and just going back to the, to the actual book by John Warlow, just going to go back. In, in that book, he gave example of building logos like, and that was in my head, that is more of a repeat customer. But what I'm talking about is recurring customer. As you mentioned, like, you know, there is a monthly payment, sort of a uh, payment scheme, as it were, for the, for the client. And with most customers, which I, we, we work with, there is a, a lock-in as well. So there is like a six months, one year, three years, five years lock-in. And I think that's exciting because then... As a uh, as a company owner, you know what you'll be making after in in the next three years. For example, uh, the buyers want, know that as well. They can see the, the the future as it were. And you know, 
because our clients are in that way, and we charge the same way as well, because there is only one real opportunity today, I feel, uh, which is, you know, which is really lucrative, which is the SaaS market, which is software as a service market, uh, and the components of that you can use in the service market as well. So I just think that it makes more sense to use that kind of recurring fee opportunity. Yeah, look, and I agree completely. It's it, And for those out there who are listening who have a more traditional business, I mean, you can understand why this model drives value, right? I mean, if somebody's going to buy your business, they're fundamentally buying your future stream of revenue and profit. And they then, when they put a number on what that's worth, they generally start discounting that valuation based on all the risk they see. You know, in other words, the, the risk that that profit or a revenue won't eventuate. So if you have a model that fundamentally locks in that future revenue in a nice, regular, incremental amount, you know, you can see that a buyer would look at that and, and you'd understand churn rates and things like that and understand just how much more reliable a business like that is and therefore, in turn, why we're seeing such crazy valuations on businesses that work on an annual or monthly recurring revenue model. You know, and I think I saw the, the average the other, the other day, I saw a couple of businesses out there actually that were trading on not, not even a multiple of their profit, but a multiple of revenue, mm. which what a, what a lovely way to value a business. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, there's all these discussions at the moment in the, in the agency market about, you know, how should you sell your company and should, should there be like a fixed upfront up and, and an earn out as well, for example. And I think it comes down to two things. One is, you know how different a company is, and what what is the predict- predictable revenue which you have in the company. And number two is negotiations. I mean, uh, that is another big part. I think people should, you know, put their foot down and negotiate properly and really value what they've built over the, over the last few years. Yeah, uh, and and I guess last last little kind of tip or point on that is that if if you're thinking to yourself, you know, you're listening to this and thinking that recurring revenue models don't work for your business. Um, I, I highly recommend John Warlow's second book, which was The Automatic Customer. And in there, he actually talks about nine models of recurring revenue. And in all honesty, I am yet to find a business out there that can't apply at least one of those models to at least a portion of their revenue. So, you, you know, if you could get to 20% or 30% of annual recurring revenue as opposed to your traditional model, you're still ahead, right? Certainly. And I, I think it's all about the sort of these numbers is the MRRs, the ARRs, the LTVs, the CAC ratios. You know, I, I believe that, you know, we should be always looking at those numbers. I mean, I, I love numbers. That's why I mean, that's, that's why I started, obviously. But I mean, as, an, as a business owner, you should know your numbers in the back of your palm. You really, really should. Uh, if you don't, there's a problem, in, in my opinion. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wind back for a second, Raj, because I reckon there's a bunch of people that went, huh, what did he just say then? What were those acronyms? So, uh, so ARR being annual recurring revenue, MRR being monthly recurring revenue. But talk me through the other two that you, you mentioned there. Sure. So LTV is lifetime value. Basically, that is, say, for example, a customer you bring in, you know, makes you $100,000 per, per year. And they stay with you for three years. The lifetime value of that is three hundred thousand dollars, basically. And you know, it's good to know two numbers here. One is what do they make you per year, and what and how long will they stay with you on average? Great numbers to actually know. The other one is CAC, CAC, Customer Acquisition Cost, which is basically the the cost or the amount of money you spend to acquire a customer. And what's interesting for me, and most I guess other 
you know, I also invest some money as an angel investor as well. So when I look at companies, I look at, you know, obviously the person, the team, but also look at the LTV to, to CSE, LTV to CAC ratio. And I like to at least have three to one. So you know, if I bring a, bring somebody in, I spend, say, you know, half a million, bring them in, then I want to see at least one and a half million made from that, for example. Yeah. So so for every dollar you spend, you want a three times return. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And 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 what an interesting number because I, I do find a lot of traditional businesses struggle to to capture some of these numbers, and I think part of that too is is as they say, you know, with a lot of tech, it's sort of garbage in, garbage out, right? Unless you've got good information coming in, it's hard to kind of measure and get quality, you know, data coming out the other end to make decisions with, right? So um, so actually knowing what you're spending on marketing and the sales process and all of these sort of elements, these inputs. Is uh, is going to be pretty important if you want to, um, you know, put an accurate figure on all this stuff. I agree, Alto. I think it's a little bit unfair to apply some of these numbers to traditional businesses. I mean, if if a business is a FMCG, for example, and they don't have subscription models as part of it, like the Dollar, like Dollar Shave Club had, they actually had a subscription model uh, built into their offering. Then it's really hard to apply these numbers to them because you, you don't really have a you know a recurring business there. And it's, then, you know, it's really hard to figure out if it's a repeat customer, a recurring customer. It's like it's a repeat customer, basically. It's not a recurring customer at all. Yeah, absolutely. It is uh, it is an interesting one. So, okay, so your clients, sort of coming back to it, you you deal with clients who have subscription-based models. And is there a particular size or sector or anything like that that you kind of lean into? Or is it just really it's focused more on just the model? Oh, well, we like to focus on companies who are doing about 100 million in uh, in, in revenue uh, ARR. That's that's a typical that's the the, the sweet spot for us. Uh, the other customers who are not there yet, but they will get there. They have the right trajectory to kind of get there. And the others who are way past it, for example. So we we but that's a sweet spot. That's where we like to focus our attention on because that's where we can actually show value of our service. Uh, if it's too mm. small, we can't really showcase what we bring to the table. Uh, because the budgets are very small and we can't really help them. Uh, content is, is a long-term opportunity. It's not like, you know, it's a gift that keeps giving, but it needs to the proper investment to really showcase the ability. And uh, so, yeah, that's a sweet spot. That's what we'd like to focus on. Yeah, cool. And and are there, um, can, you, can you give us, a, without mentioning client names, of course, but can you give us a couple of examples of sectors that clients tend to sort of play in? Sure. So we, as I said, we focus in SaaS. In SaaS, we focus on like fintech companies. So people who are building stuff for payment gateways, for example. So we go few of those. We we work with companies who are actually doing marketing. So they actually they are martech themselves. They actually help companies to scale their marketing efforts, uh, usually in inbound marketing. Then we have companies who are in, in telco. So they're te- telecom software providers. Software providers of you know who have a recurring payment model, for example. We have customers in industrial automation, so they obviously they usually either they kind of supply a product, then they charge for it on a monthly basis in that way, or they provide a service that also is a recurring fee as well. So across the board, all our customers have recurring revenues, and they have you know internally they all measuring their MRRs and ARRs as well. And and so what's the what what's the end game? I mean, you know, I guess as entrepreneurs, we all sort of, well, maybe not all, but certainly on this show, we love to talk about where are you, where are you going with this, right? 
Um, is there a particular goal that you're aiming for that you're happy to share with us? Yeah, I mean, I'm passionate about scalability. Like, I love scalability as, as a concept. You know, I think it's great to do something, you know, you could do a mom and pop shop. That's awesome. That's great. No problems with that at all. But my, I like to see how can you build stuff which can scale nicely. So at the moment, our drive really is, I mean, we're going through a very fast growth pace at the moment and we're trying to focus on the growth. But equally, the mandate is to focus on scaling and make sure we're ready for the scale in the future as well. So it's not just add more people because we need them. It's about how do you hire people, bring them in, but also have procedures and technology to help us really be able to, to, to deliver for companies who are who require 100 times more uh, input, for example, or, or output, for instance. So that's the, the real driving force at the moment in the company. And then we'll see what we do next. I mean, you know, then we then we have more options to kind of play with, for example. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's it is it is often about keeping options open as you're shooting along your path, right? That's great. And um, and so how do how do people like you know how do people get in touch with you? I mean, if they're happy for people to reach out and connect, and where do they get more information about you and your business? Sure thing. So if you reach out to me, I'm on LinkedIn. If you just look for Raj Goodman Anand, you'll you'll find me on LinkedIn. And our business is called Goodman Lantern. Uh, so just if you just Google that, you you should find us goodmanlantern.com. And yeah, please please find me on LinkedIn and, and drop me a message. I love to hear from people. So absolutely, get, please please get in touch. Yeah, that's fantastic, Raj. It's been great chatting to you. I've really enjoyed hearing your story, and I'm I'm very excited to see where you take Goodman Lantern. No doubt, we'll uh, we'll be hearing wonderful things about you into the future. So thank you for sharing. Good luck, and uh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Simon, for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed the show as well. Thank you. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.